and chapter number one in the book of Jonah. Could you guys give me just a little more light on the audience? I, I, I really can't see people's faces very much. That would be much better there, helping me out, the old guy up here. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, if you take a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and you turn it to page 657, you will be at Jonah chapter 1. Now, last week, we really introduced the book of Jonah to us. We began to orient ourselves to the book of Jonah, which we have subtitled The God of Second Chances. And if you did not get one of the outlines that we have, the blue outlines, they are available on the information table. You might want to grab those. But we stated that some of the key phrases of the book are salvation is from the Lord and gracious and compassionate is God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Now, many people, when they look at the book of Jonah, they would say, well, that is a a story for children, a a book for children. It's an engaging story about, you know, getting swallowed by a fish and getting spit up on the seashore. And it is a fun book. In fact, one of the things we said that uh, we wanted you to do is to come up with a a three-word summary of chapter 1. And a number of you have, have shared some of those with me. I wanted to, to give you a few of the, the three-word summaries of chapter 1 that I have received. Um, one of them was this, Jonah flees assignment. Pretty good summary. Um, learned, rebelled, rebuked. How about this one? Can't escape God. Pretty good summary. Here's another one I liked, down the hatch. Uh, That was pretty good. Uh, The theme of down, we're going to see, is a very prominent one in the book. But probably the the most intriguing one that I heard came from Tootsie Boyd, and her three-word summary of chapter one was, go, no, whoa. So uh, that's a pretty good summary. It's a fun book, but it's not really merely a story for children. Um... It is also a book for those of us who are a little bit more grown up. The reality is in this book is to be found profound, penetrating truth. Now, I want to ask you a question, just to stop where we are so far in our approach to Jonah and ask you this question, who is this book about? Who is this book about? You tell me. Let me hear. Who is the book about? It's not a trick question. Jonah, it's a book about Jonah, and it's a book about Jonah's rebellion and and Jonah's lack of compassion. It's a a book about his mistakes and the bad choices that he makes. Who else is this a book about? Okay, it's a book about God, and we get in the book insights into his heart. We get insights into how he relates to his followers. We see his grace, his compassion. We see that he is slow to anger. It is a book about Jonah, and it is a book about God, but it is also, I believe, a book about us. You know, as I was studying uh, this week, I came across this piece of information that I wasn't even aware of before, and that was that the book of Jonah in the Jewish community is read in the synagogue on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. So on the Day of Atonement, In the synagogue, they read Jonah. But after they read the book, the congregation in unison 
says back to the one who is reading the book, we are Jonah. We are Jonah. And this really is a book also about us. And you may say, how does all of that work? What what do you mean by that? Well, let's just look at a couple of passages before we actually get into Jonah. I want you to turn to the book of Isaiah, which is to your left, and chapter number 42. Isaiah 42. And you remember that Israel, the people of God, in the Old Testament, they had been given an assignment. In Isaiah 42, verses 5 to 7, we see that assignment. Verse 5 says, Thus says the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. This is what God says. I am the Lord, and I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And here we go. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people as a light to the nations to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. They had an assignment, and that assignment was to be light to the nations. Now turn over a few chapters to the right to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, and in the last part of verse 6, this gets repeated again, where God says to the people of God in the Old Testament, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. You see, they had an assignment to be light. Now, how does that affect us? Well, turn with me now in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter number 5. And here we have Jesus teaching the disciples and his followers. And he says in Matthew chapter 5, Verse 14, you, he's really speaking to us here, are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And then in verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In the Old Testament, they had an assignment to be light to the nations, and as Jesus unpacks the assignment for his followers, it's the same one, to be light. And we have said at Wildwood, our mission statement is to glorify God by shining as light in our homes, in our community, and in the world. So the reality is, men and women, we are Jonah. Let's just say that out loud together, right? Are you ready? We are Jonah. Again, a little louder now. We are Jonah. That is a critical perspective that we have as we move into the book because this book is going to mirror our own hearts. So, let's go back to chapter 1, and I would like to read the first four verses of Jonah. I invite you to follow along in your Bible as I'm reading. Verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, 
Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Now, last week we really had our initial orientation to the book, and in some ways we're going to have a second orientation to Jonah today. And there are a lot of titles I could have given to the message today. One title could have been Running from God, because that's exactly what happens. Or maybe the title Moving in the Wrong Direction, which is very true of Jonah. Or another title I thought of was Going Spiritually Overboard, good title for today's message, but it's not the one that I chose. The one that I chose was, here I am, send someone else. And that's what we want to talk about. What a great contrast Jonah is to Isaiah. You remember Isaiah in the sixth chapter when God says, whom am I going to send? Who will go? And Isaiah goes, here I am, send me. Well, Jonah is the opposite of that. Here I am, send someone else. Now, I want to give you the outline that I have for the, the four verses that we're going to be looking at today. We have Jonah's commission in verses 1 and 2, and then we have Jonah's disobedience in verse 3, and then we have Jonah's calamity in verses 4 and following. So his commission that he receives from God, his disobedience, and then the calamity that comes. Now, as we look at these verses, there are two key truths that are going to bubble up that we're going to be seeing. The first key truth is that God cares for all people. Now, I think we would agree with that truth mentally, but I'm not sure that we believe that truth experientially. God cares for all people. And the second key truth that will bubble up is that the path of disobedience spirals downward. Very important thing to know. The path of disobedience goes down. So let's begin by looking at Jonah's commission here. Look with me again at verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but the word Jonah literally means dove. In other words, the word for a dove in Hebrew is the word Jonah. So that was his name, dove. And uh, there's, there's some irony in that name because if you've been already working your way through the book and you've read through it, you'll find out that he, he was more of a hawk than he was a dove, right? Right? When it came to the Assyrians and the people in Nineveh, he was more interested that God would condemn them than convert them. And the honest truth which comes out in the book is he was really hoping that they would receive the punishment that he thought they deserved to receive. So his name is Dove, but he's really a little more of a hawk. Another interesting thing about a dove is a dove is a home-loving bird. 
And I think there's a little reflection in Jonah's life of that. He seemed to love people who were like him to the exclusion of others. And you don't need to turn there because we looked at it a little bit last week, but there's a historical backdrop to this, 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 27. And you might remember, if you are with us last week, that he had given a prophecy to the northern kingdom of Israel, very well summarized by Paul Mackerel. He said this, it was, this message from Jonah to the nation of Israel was at a time of national idolatry and immorality. Jeroboam II, who was the king of the northern kingdom, had led the people into sin. But God gave to Jonah a prophecy where he prophesied that Israel's borders, which had been eaten away by enemy excursions and incursions, would be restored. In other words, there was a core lesson that Jonah's first prophecy that is recorded for us communicated, and that is, the Lord shows mercy to the undeserving. (laughs) Israel didn't deserve to have their borders restored, but God graciously, graciously was providing that. You know, Jonah seemed to be okay with a message that the Lord shows mercy to the undeserving, as long as it was to him and those like him but not when it came to other people. And you know what? In a lot of ways, we struggle with similar ideas. Oh, we're very open to the idea that the Lord would show mercy in an undeserving way to me, but I'm not so sure about some of these other people that I know about out there. We wouldn't admit that, but we think that. And so, the word of the Lord came to the dove man, Jonah. And I almost can imagine, you know, after he got this first prophecy from the Lord that he delivered to the nation, hey, the borders are all going to be restored, he was probably thinking, this is cool. I'm getting another assignment. This is going to be really, really fun. And I almost imagine it went something like this where the Lord said, Jonah, I want you to take a trip. And Jonah goes, hey, nifty. You know, maybe I'm going to get to go to the capital city again and talk to the you know, the king and the leaders there, and um, maybe, it'll, maybe God will send me on some kind of a cool cruise somewhere. I don't know what kind of trip he's got for me, but it'll, it'll be cool. And then the Lord delivers, and here is the assignment, the trip. Arise, verse 2, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, again, I want to remind you of Nineveh. It was the capital of Assyria. And remember, the Assyrians were really the number one enemy of Israel at this point. And Nineveh was a super city. It was the epitome of security and strength. In fact, interestingly, in the book, three times Nineveh is called a great city. Chapter 3, verse 2 chapter 3, verse 3, chapter 4, verse 11, repeated three times. It's a great city. But as we began to share with you last time, it was also an evil city and a wicked city. It was a cruel and violent culture. The Assyrians were the bane of the ancient world. They were 
very grisly and gruesome in their cruelty. They were somewhat like Hitler and Stalin rolled into one. Or maybe when you think about the butchering and the slaughtering in Rwanda and Darfur, and you combine them together, you just begin to get an idea of who the Assyrians were. And Nineveh was the capital city. In fact, they were so proud of their violence towards people that they would carve depictions of it on their walls and on panels in their buildings. In fact, they would give detailed written descriptions of the torture that they would do to people. And we have some of these records. For example, King Asher Nasherpal II actually wrote these words of one conquest that they had militarily. In the midst of the mighty mountain, I slaughtered them. With their blood, I dyed the mountain red like wool. The heads of their warriors, I cut off. And I formed them into a pillar over against their city. Their young men and their maidens, I burned in the fire. I built a pillar over against the city gate. So I made this little pillar over against the city gate. And I flayed all the chief men. And I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up within the pillar. In other words, he put people actually inside of the pillar permanently. Some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. If you can just try to picture this, a bunch of stakes sticking out and people being impaled on it. And others I bound to stakes that were around the pillar. And I spread their skins upon the walls. And I cut off the limbs of the officers, of the royal officers who had fought against us. Now, I have never seen a human skin just cut off. I don't even know what that would look like. But that's what they did. They were nasty people. They were nasty people. Uh, one of the things that they would do at times with you as an individual, if they captured you, uh, they might cut off all of your limbs, but leave one hand so that they could shake your hand as you were dying. It's the kind of people they were. They would sometimes cut off the heads of people and stack them eight high on a pole, and then they would require a friend of the eight who had had their heads cut off to parade around with that pole in their hands. That was the Assyrians. They would with people that they would capture, hack off their private parts. They would literally, I know this is gruesome, but it's just we want to feel for what was going through Jonah's mind. They would cut off uh, people's hands and feet and heads and noses and ears and then make giant piles. You know, there's the nose pile over there and the ear pile over here and the head pile over there. They would even take the children and the youth of people that they would capture and they would just burn them alive. In fires. Incredible, repugnant practices. No wonder it says in verse 2, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. See, God sees all things, and the stench of their behavior had reached 
heaven. And he said, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to cry against it. Which then leads us to the second movement, and that is Jonah's disobedience. Notice verse 3, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, we need to ask ourselves the question, why does he respond this way? Why does he just take off? Well, some would say it was due to fear. Some would say, oh, you know, he didn't want to take a trip to a foreign land. That's always spooky. But we're going to see that Tarshish was a lot farther away than Nineveh. Some would say, well, it was a fear because he was concerned about the peril that might come if he goes into such a place and the ridicule he might get. I mean, think about one guy standing up against those 100-foot walls that were 50 feet thick, and he's going to say, you know, 40 days and you will be overthrown. Some people say he was fearful of what that might bring in his life. But I don't think that has anything to do with it. In fact, we're really grateful that Jonah reveals really what the issue was in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He tells us what the issue was. And that issue was, he was concerned that God might be gracious to Nineveh. He was concerned that God would extend his compassion, his grace, and his mercy to Nineveh. He was concerned that God might forgive them if they repented, that God might embrace them, that God might adopt them into his family. In fact, as Jonathan Swift wrote, this is really what Jonah's frame of mind was. We are God's chosen few. All others will be damned. There is no place in heaven for you. We can't have heaven crammed. That was the attitude that he had. Now you're going, well, you know, I certainly would never think anything like that. Well, let me ask you this question. Who do you, who do you most dislike on this planet? Who would you be most reluctant to see God hold out their hand of mercy to? Who would it be? Some might say, well, the major cults, you know, people like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons that, that uh, through sort of a pseudo-Christianity overview um, literally mislead thousands of people into a bleak eternity. That's, that's the group of people I would think of. Or some people might even say, I mean, let's just be honest, some people would say, hey, the, it's those politician people back in D.C., you know. Those, those people wasting billions of dollars, being crooked and all the things that they do. Some people might say, well, it, it would be the biased news media, the ones that are just so cocky about everything that they do, and I'm not that interested in God extending his hand of mercy to them. Some might say, well, you know, when I think of people I, I'm really reluctant to see get mercy from God, I, I might think about the Hollywood crowd, you know, the, the, the 
lack of respect for marriage, the, the, the sex industry that's there, you know, many of them involved in drugs and just being everything the opposite of biblical Christianity. You know, if we were going to ask this question in, in, in Latvia, I know what the answer would be. If they were going to be honest, it would be Russians. Because I remember my relatives being tortured in the Soviet Union. Maybe we would say the people would be most reluctant to see God hold forth his hand of mercy. We might say uh, terrorists, you know, radical Muslims, the kind of people who would just as soon place a bomb under your car. Some of us might say, well, the homosexual community, those twisted people who are perverting everything that God says about normal sexuality. Somebody might even say, you know what? I, I might let God show mercy to a lot of people, but someone who is guilty of rape? Oh, no. Never. Never would I ever put up with that. And are any of those people any worse than the Assyrians and the city of Nineveh? I don't think so. Now that doesn't mean, please don't misunderstand, that doesn't mean that God condones their wickedness. But the idea is, is that God offers life change to everybody. Everybody. And too often, we really, we really care more about them getting condemned than we care about them getting converted. And that is very easily reflected in how we talk about these people. See, we talk about with, a, with an attitude of condemning on our minds rather than an attitude of converting on our minds. But you see, God's mercy is so great, it can convert the worst of sinners, the worst of sinners. And his love and his grace is not something that we are to hoard. In other words, we are to rather offer his love and grace and mercy to everyone. Remember what Jesus said? Part of the commission he gave to us in Mark chapter 16, verse 15. That commission was, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Anybody left out in all creation? All creation means everyone ought to be offered life change and mercy from God. And how are they ever going to know? How are they ever going to know that God's mercy is available to them without someone to tell them. You know, I'm, I am extremely grateful for a lot of people who have the attitude, here I am, God, send me. You know, I, I'm grateful for people like Master Media International, and we had uh, Larry Poland, who is their president, come and speak here at Wildwood. And their, their whole focus is to bring the message of mercy ultimately to the movie and TV industry in this country. 
And really what they're saying to God is, here I am, send me. Rather than sitting back and just sort of waving a finger and, man, God, would you just zap those people? They're beginning to reach out to them. I'm grateful for organizations like Sat7. Uh, they do satellite transmissions, TV transmissions, into the Middle East and into North Africa seeking to reach Muslims. You know, you can't go there physically, but you can go there by way of video. Rather than just saying, oh, you know, wipe those people off the face of the planet. People like that are saying, here I am, God send me. And, and really what God is saying is that I have a plan to reach all these people. And he's saying, church, guess what? You're the plan. I want you to shine as light. I want you to preach the gospel to all creation. And he said to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And then we come to verse 3. But, the big but, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, I just want you to understand that basically God said to Jonah, I want you to go to the right, and then he decided to exit stage left. Nineveh was 500 miles to the northeast. Jonah took off directly west, right down the Mediterranean Sea. And it says, it says interestingly enough to me, this is very interesting, three times, three times in verse 3, it says he was headed to Tarshish. That, that's important that it gets mentioned three times. Now, when we talk about Tarshish, we're not talking about Tarsus. Remember Saul, who was Paul, of Tarsus. This is not the same place. In fact, you say, well, where is Tarshish? And most, we really are unsure. We just really don't know exactly. Most scholars identify Tarshish with Tarsessus, which was in Spain. So if you think about where he was, God said, I want you to go 500 miles to the northeast, and if they are right that it was identified with Tartessus in Spain, he was headed 2,000 miles to the west, to Tarshish. Tarshish, we know from the Old Testament, was a Phoenician city, a trade city, and it was the farthest away known city of the time. And what's really interesting is that the ships of Tarshish were long-range vessels. They took long-range trips. Where was Tarshish? Well, we really don't know, but I want you to keep your finger here, and I want you to turn to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles, it's before the book of Job, which is before the book of Psalms, go to 2 Chronicles chapter 9. I want you to see a very fascinating little verse. This is just intriguing. I don't know what this may mean. But 2 Chronicles 9.21 tells us that the king had ships which went to Tarshish with the servants of Huram, once every three years, the ships of Tarshish came 
bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Now here's what is interesting. You see there a map of North Africa, and atop of that is the Mediterranean Sea. The ships of Tarshish came every three years. That would be a year and a half voyage one way and a year and a half voyage coming back. And what is really interesting is part of what they brought back on the ship were apes and peacocks. By the way, apes you don't find in the Mediterranean area proper. And so some people even wonder if when they're talking about Tarshish, not just going to Spain, but literally going all the way, the whole length of the Mediterranean into the Atlantic, and then peeling southward down into Africa some way. It's possible that's where Tarshish was located. In fact, I understand that peacocks were only found in India at the time. So can you imagine the length of this trip could have possibly been to come all the way across the Mediterranean, out into the Atlantic, maybe all the way around the southern horn of Africa, even over to India and back. And I don't know how long that might have taken, but a year and a half one way and a year and a half back, possibly. I'm not sure where Tarshish was, but wherever it was, it was an exotic place. It was an adventurous place. It was a Shangri-La of the day, and he wanted to escape. If you go back to Jonah chapter 1, it says he wanted to escape from the presence of the Lord. Now, Psalm 139 had been written by David. Remember Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10, that you cannot flee from the presence of the Lord. It's like trying to get away from air. <laughs> Everywhere you go, God's there. So what does it mean he tried to flee from the presence of the Lord? Well, literally it says in the original, he wanted to flee from the face of the Lord. In other words, he was running from God's influence in his life. He was attempting to disconnect from God, which, by the way, is a natural response that someone has when they are violating God's will in their life. And I'm reminded of Adam and Eve. Remember them in Genesis chapter 3? And they violated the will of God. And it's the cool of the evening, and God comes walking through the garden. And where are they? They're hiding from the face of the Lord. They're hiding among the trees. It's not that they didn't think that, you know, God was present everywhere, but they were running from God's influence. They were trying to become disconnected from him. And that's what Jonah wanted to do, but the hound of heaven was not about to let go of him. And I want you to notice, you have Tarshish repeated in, in verse 3. We have in this chapter the word down repeated a lot. He rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, so he went down to Joppa, which by the way is Joppa today. And, and we see this down theme being repeated. He paid the fare and went down into the ship. And then in verse 5, he goes down into the hold. And then in verse 5, he lays down. He laid down there in the ship. The path of disobedience spirals downward. It's just the way that it works. I've told the story before when I went skiing the very first time and I had this guy instruct me on how to ski. I was skiing New Jersey. 
Most people don't even know you can ski in New Jersey, but I was skiing New Jersey. And uh, he, he told me, you know, what the rules were, what the, the will is of a skier and how you're supposed to do things. And I thought I had the whole thing figured out, you know. And then I pointed my tips, being overconfident in myself, I pointed my tips downward. And boy, I'm telling you, I went downward. Boom, you know, trying to miss people and everything else, not really knowing what I was doing. And the whole thing I knew was coming. I was whooshing down and there was going to be a crash at the bottom. And that's kind of what happens when we go on the path of disobedience. We spiral downward. And think about it with me for a moment. Think about David with Bathsheba. Just how that thing spiraled downward. You remember he sees her bathing and there's this moment of lust. And then he says, you know what, I'm going to call for her because I just want to talk to her. And then it goes downward from there as they end up committing adultery, both of them married people. And then it goes downward from there as she becomes pregnant. And then it goes downward from there as he tries to cover the whole thing up and try to get her husband back from the battlefront so that they might be intimate together and it might look like her husband got her pregnant. And then he had too much integrity for that, so that doesn't work. So that leads to him having to set up Uriah, her husband, so that he would die on the battlefield. The path of disobedience spirals downward. And by the way, if you're on that path right now, I just want you to be reminded of that. It's true. It spirals downward. He rose up to flee from the presence of the Lord, and that is repeated at the end of verse 3 again, from the presence of the Lord, from the face of the Lord. Now, I want to I make a couple of quick observations here. We're almost at the end of our time today. The first one that's kind of interesting to me is how the circumstances all lined up for him. Did you notice that? He wants to run and disconnect from God, and so he goes down to, to, to Joppa, which would have been 20 miles if he had been in Samaria, 60 miles if he'd been in Gath Hefer, his hometown. And he wants to go down there and get a ship to Tarshish. And he gets there, and guess what? There's a ship to Tarshish. They just weren't there every day. And then, you know, he has to pay a fare which, by the way, would have been like our most expensive airfare of the day. It was probably, you know, in our minds, it would have been like having $2,000. How many people carry that on them? Well, he had it with him. He's able to pay the fare. Everything seems to fit together as he walks away from God. But it's satanic providence, not divine providence. <laughs> and that's why men and women, circumstances by themselves, listen to this for a moment, can never Bring us to the conclusion that God is condoning and confirming what we may be doing is right. Just because circumstances seem to fit together doesn't mean the path that we're choosing to take is right. Second thing I just want you to notice here as we get ready to close is I can just imagine how this worked. You know, he does all this stuff, you know, everything, get paid the fare, got the ship to Tarshish, and he gets on deck, you know, and I kind of picture the thing sailing off. And he's taking that breath of fresh air of the Mediterranean Sea, and everything's nice and calm and beautiful. And what's he thinking? He's thinking the disconnect is successful. God's really not going to notice. But you cannot run from God. God will do what is necessary to get our attention. And we may choose to travel down the path, but we're never going to be too far down that God's hand can't 
reach us. Which leads us to his calamity in verses 4 and following. God brings a storm to get Jonah's attention. And we're going to pick up with that next time. This is a deliciously deep book. Now, some life response that we can have as we come away from the book. Built around two words, the word delve and the word reflect. Okay, these are some things we can be doing. Delve deeper. I want you to take some time in your time with the Lord this week and spend a little more time going deeper in chapter 1. I want you to compare and contrast something. I want you to compare and contrast Jonah and the sailors, okay? Would you do that? What do you see comparing and contrasting Jonah and the sailors? Sailors. And the other thing I want you to no- notice as you delve deeper into this is I want you to notice there is a cameo of Calvary to be found in chapter 1. See if you can see it. And then the second thing by way of life response is I want us to reflect, to reflect, and ask ourselves the question, am I a Jonah or am I an Isaiah? Am I a Jonah? I want to rationalize that God will use someone else. And what if, what if God were to come to you and say, I want you to go to Tehran, Iran? What if God came to you and said, I want you to go and reach the Palestinians? What if God came to you and said, I want you to go and reach the Russians? What if God came to you and said, I want you to go to your neighbor who is a practicing homosexual, and I want you to share with that person the mercy of God? What if God said, I want you to go to someone who dresses differently from you, who's very different from you? Would we say, here I am, Send me, or, ah, God will use somebody else. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word, and I I thank you for this living book, and I thank you for the fact that we are Jonah, and we shouldn't go into this book just thinking, well, this is a book about somebody else. This is really a book about us, and we would pray that you would minister to us and teach us what you want to teach us for your glory, and for the glory of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.